Hotspot hosts are the most important part of the Helium ecosystem. That's why Fairspot gives 70% of mining revenue to our hosts, with payouts every Friday. Unlike other services that offer as little as 20% and keep the rest to themselves, we put you first by sending you a free hotspot and giving you your fair share of the earnings. No referral programs, no hype. Just a shared mission to grow the Helium network and empower you to monetize your airspace without any upfront investment. Learn more at fairspot.host. Welcome to the Hotspot. I'm your host, Armand Desfouli Arjamandi. Today, we're joined by Helium co-founder and CEO, Amir Halim, who guides us through Helium's journey to build a wireless network for low-power sensors. It's a fascinating story filled with twists and turns, failure and success, and one overarching mission to fill an aching demand in the tech world that for some reason, nobody has been able to fill until now. We cover lots of ground here, including the beginnings of the company, fundraising, technology choices, the crypto economic model, and visions for the future. A fair warning, our discussion gets fairly technical at times, but even if you're not technically inclined, I urge you to stick around, especially if you're interested in the grand idea of building a network that's powered and owned by people, not big telcos. Amir, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Armin. Pleasure to, uh, pleasure to be here. So to kick things off, I want to hear your elevator pitch. What is Helium <laughs> and, and why should people care about it? I think, I don't know if this is an elevator version. I haven't perfected the elevator version. That, that only comes when I'm you know, deep in some fundraising mode or something. But, but the, the, the general pitch is that there's sort of two levels of pitch, right? What one is um, we need a different type of wireless network for low power things. Like that's the simple way of thinking about it, right? That like we, a decade ago, people started talking about the internet of things and, you know, machine to machine communication and the way that sort of life and the world could be improved if we knew more data about the physical world uh, in the same way that we know lots of data about the sort of digital word, world and like, you know, we've had fads like big data, and NoSQL and whatever that have sort of driven all of that. But there hasn't really been an equivalent thing in sort of real life, right? Like, where are the sensors everywhere that tell us about radiation or particle, particulates in the air or humidity or, you know, is your food safe and all that kind of stuff? And so the, the, the goal of Helium really is to sort of enable a new type of wireless network at its, at its core, right? Like we need, in our opinion, we need this sort of low power infrastructure and we don't have it. The, the second way of thinking about Helium is, you know, perhaps a little bit different, which is, a sort of a community built, people built network, right? And and that's a new concept as well. In the same way that I think Airbnb allowed random people to become hotel operators, or Uber allowed people to operate a cab company themselves, um, Helium is a way for you to monetize your infrastructure, right? You've got real estate and internet access and power, and those are all things that you need in order to operate a you know, wireless network, basically, right? And, and so the traditional model has been that telcos go and acquire that, those things themselves, like they acquired cell towers and rooftops and whatever else. And, and Helium is a different model for that, right? Like prior to Helium, there was no way for a random consumer to participate in the telco economic infrastructure. And Helium is a, a sort of way to do that. So two pitches, maybe. That's great. Yeah, I've definitely found the Airbnb uh, sort of comparison pretty useful when I'm talking to somebody about hosting hotspots. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I think Airbnb was super interesting because, like, if, if you wanted to operate a hotel yourself, you have very little chance of doing that, right, prior, prior to Airbnb. And the telco industry is sort of the same, perhaps even worse, right, because it's even more insidious. Like, you, you need more than just interest. You need more than just real estate, right? You need access to, like, licensed spectrum. And it's, like, this very closed-off, like, boys' club that the average person is never going to get to infiltrate, right? And, and so... Um, Helium is sort of the start of an idea there, really. It's like, why wouldn't we build all the wireless networks this way? Like to, today, it's a low power one, um, but eventually it could be anything, right? You could run an LTE or a 5G network or practically any type of wireless network this way. And, and why wouldn't you do it that way, given, given the chance, right? So you've got this, this really interesting concept of sort of democratizing the, the creation of a wireless network. And it's working so far, seemingly. I mean, you've got over 4,000 hotspots out there in the wild. Um, and you know, that's a tremendous achievement. But I'd love to take a shallow dive into the history of the company. Because a majority of companies in the blockchain space were started in the last two to three years. And only a handful have been around longer than that. And most people probably don't know that Helium was originally founded in 2013 and had nothing to do with blockchain. So what was the initial mission of Helium? How did the team assemble and who was involved? Yeah, that's a long, I mean, it's a long story, but I'll try and make it sane. Um, so Mike, my, my, just sort of for a second, like my background is in the video game industry. Like I was a long time ago, a pro esports player, like in the late 90s. You know, like I was literally like the best Quake 1 and Quake 3 player in the world. Um, and that was super interesting. Like, firstly, there was no one playing games at the scale that they are now, right? So, like, the, the universe of Quake players was in the hundreds or thousands that were, you know, that were good. And there was a lot of reasons for that, right? Like, it was inaccessible. Like, you needed to build your, a PC yourself, and you needed some way of getting a fast internet connection, and that just, like, wasn't an option in, like, 97 or 98, unless you were a student or worked in an office with a T1. Uh, but that introduced me to a lot of things and I, I sort of helped me start my career and I, I worked at a, a Swedish startup that ended up building my Battlefield 1942. We were acquired by EA and you know that, that sort of led me into my video game career. Uh, and through that, I, I met Sean Fanning, who was the founder of Napster somewhere along the way. And we had you know just stayed in touch and we had a, a friend circle that all knew each other. And I, I don't know, probably 2012 at some point. Um, really, we had a friend of ours, guy Chris Bruce, um, that was starting a baby monitor company called Sproutling. Right, like they were trying to build a a baby monitor. It was like an Apple Watch for babies, but basically, right? Except the, the baby obviously wouldn't look at the watch. It was more, so more like a Fitbit or something like that. And the problem was uh, that the only way to to sort of do anything power efficient in terms of connectivity was use Bluetooth. Right. And the problem with Bluetooth was that the range was, you know, as you guys know, feet, like dozens of feet. Right. If you're if you're if you're lucky. And what he wanted was something different to that. Right. Like I want to just be able to like take this thing outside just like I do a cell phone. And it should just work, you know, where, wherever it is. And I think that was really the start of the conversation that, that we started having between us. And, and Chris and Sean were friends and, you know, we were all in this sort of same group. And that led us to have this conversation about, well, what if we could build a wireless network designed for sensors? Like, why has no one done that? And, and there were some interesting new technologies that had just appeared, like LoRa had just been born. But back then, LoRaWAN wasn't a thing, but the LoRa technology existed uh, in 2013. And stuff had just generally started to become a lot cheaper and a lot more sort of 
uh, I don't know, experimental in nature, like TI had a bunch of chips that were all of a sudden really interesting for this stuff. And so that was, you know, that was really the start of the conversation. And so it was like Sean and I and, and sort of Chris influenced it a little bit. Um, we had a co-founder, this guy, Sean Carey, that came from Basho, which is this distributed system database company that had built the backend for like iMessage and, and, you know, had generally had a pretty good distributed systems background. And that was really the conversation. And so that the, the mission at the start was really like, let's build a wireless network. And, and the reason we thought it might work at the time actually was a very different reason than we ended up sort of pursuing was that TV stations were starting to go digital. And so all this leftover spectrum that they used to occupy was being uh, unlicensed, right? And they now call this white space, right? Like this was, this was sort of the white space movement where these TV stations were leaving these channels. And we were like, maybe this is an opportunity to do something that couldn't have been done prior, right? Like these channels, these frequencies weren't available before, and so they are now. Um, but yeah, things took many, many twists and turns. But the, the mission was always the same. It was always like, how do we build a wireless network that these things can use? And over the years, it just sort of became obvious and apparent to us that trying to do it in a traditional centralized model was never going to work, right? And I think we've seen other companies try and do that over the years, whether it is Ingenue, who used to be called OnRamp Wireless, or Sigfox, or you know some of the current guys at Machine Q and Senate. And it's a tough business, you know, because you've got to build infrastructure yourself. You've got to pay for the hardware. You've got to pay for the real estate and the electricity and and you're talking about sensors that are going to pay, you know, cents or dollars a year or something like that to use the network. And so it's very difficult to, to figure out an ROI that makes sense versus something like an LTE network where you've got like iPhones on the thing that are, you know, $100, $200 a month or something in ROI. So it's a very difficult business to make work in the traditional model. Um, and that was, you know, sort of led us down the path of, of where, we, where we ended up today, basically. That's great. Can you can you walk us through some of the key iterative points and pivots where you sort of hit a wall and were like, this is no longer working? Um, I know that, for example, there was at least one version of the Helium hotspot before the current design that I don't believe was <laughs> sold to the public ever. No, we, we've got lots of different versions. I mean, so, so the first thing that we built was this 802.15.4 based protocol. So 15.4 is this, you know, IEEE standard that is probably most well-known for being the physical layer for Zigbee, which is a, a low-power sensor network um, technology. And we had acquired this small company in Colorado that had a lot of 15.4 expertise. Like, got, like one of the guys there was like, you know, the secretary of the Zigbee standard. And we knew the 15.4, wow. or they knew, they knew the 15.4 technology deeply. Um, and so at that time, we was like, okay, let's use 15.4, right? Like that seems like, a good way to at least start this. Um, and so we had this, the very first version of a hotspot, not even a hotspot, we called it a bridge. It was this extraordinarily complicated hardware thing because it had five or six different wireless radios on it. It was like Bluetooth, wireless, 2.4 gigahertz, sub gigahertz. Um, and, you know, it was this, the concept was similar. We just didn't have the right incentive. Well, we had no incentive, in fact. It was, it was you know, buy this thing and help us build this network, right? And the result of building this network is that there is going to be this, you know, open infrastructure that anyone can use to build products on top of, right? And so we went pretty far down that, that path. I mean, we had hardware, we had the SDKs and sort of the server-side infrastructure. And so this was pre-LoRaWAN, right? LoRaWAN didn't exist here. And like, arguably, if we had decided to use LoRa instead of 154, 
I'm guessing that LoRaWAN would have been built on top of like what we built because it's very, very similar in design. And this was 2013, like before LoRaWAN had, had really been conceived. And so, it, but it was the same sort of notion, right? Like it should be this relatively sort of broadcast-based network where you could sort of wander around between between the different base stations and it should be low power and it should somehow be low cost. And what we just hadn't figured out was like how how you would do that. Like what was the incentive for like people to like build this network other than participants in the network, right? Like if you were a if you were a company, I remember we worked with companies like Target and but funnily enough like Doorbot, which became Ring, and like all the all these other companies back then um, that were trying to do stuff like this. And you know, like in the Ring case, they wouldn't have used it for video, but they would have used it for provisioning, for example, right? And so there were a lot there were lots of these sort of hybrid cases. But the problem was still the same. It's like, unless you were like an actual device company, there was no reason for the network to exist, right? There was no reason for a random participant to put, put one of these bridges up. And so that led us into to a different kind of pivot where it's like, okay, well, what if we took this technology and tried to apply it in this sort of very verticalized way, right? And so if you looked at someone like Samsara, like I would, I would call them like the sort of best example of doing this well, right? Where they've picked a vertical, which is like fleet monitoring or, or fleet sort of applications. And they built like a complete end-to-end product and went after that vertical. Um, and we, you know, dabbled in various verticals like that. You know, we were in some restaurants for a while and, hotel- and hospitals for a while, and even hotels and hospitality. And, um, but again, it's just difficult. I mean, I, I think we were, our DNA as a company was not to do that, right? Like our DNA was a platform company that, that sort of at its core wanted to build open source technology that was broadly adopted. And so trying to like, the, trying to sort of emulate what Samsara did was like a, alien for us. Like it was sort of forcing ourselves to do something that we really didn't want to do. And maybe I'm just speaking for myself and just sort of like making it sound like everyone agreed with me. But that, that was that was sort of my feeling. Um, and then several years ago, we you know started just thinking again. It's like okay, well, what if there was a way to like incentivize people to do the first idea? Um, and at that and at that point, you know, Bitcoin had become mainstream. You know, maybe no one, maybe not everyone holds Bitcoin, but everyone certainly knows what it is. Right. Um, and Ethereum was known, and like you know, Coinbase was succeeding, and so all of a sudden it was like, okay, coins are a thing now. You know, this notion of like tokens and incentive models that that are bootstrapping networks was was all of a sudden a thing that people understood. And so we, you know, revisited it. One of our engineers wrote like what I would consider like the very first white paper of the sort of current model, uh, and that sort of started the path that we're down, which is like, let's revisit the original idea. Like, what if we could build a network? What if there was a different way to incentivize it that just wasn't really viable or possible, you know, back in 2013? Maybe it was, we were just dumb, we're, we're just too dumb to find it, but but we didn't think it was a, a thing that we could have done back then. That's really interesting. So you, start, you started out basically trying to fulfill different niches and then go from there uh, and expand. Is that correct? I mean, sort of, I mean, the original goal was always very naive. It was like, let's just build wireless networks somehow, and then people will use them because there's all these use cases that people should, should you know, should be building. And, you know, I, I think there was nothing untrue about that statement other than, like, how would you actually build the network? And we, and we hadn't figured that out, and there was no reason for, you know, random consumers or participants to to just go buy one of these bridges and, and help build the network. And that was really the whole problem with the thing. And um, so the, the original mission was always that, the, the sort of look at or the pivot into like, let's build verticalized applications was never the goal. That was just a, you know, well, that first idea isn't working properly and we have this technology, like what can we, you know, what can we apply it to? 
Um, but I, I think somewhere it always felt like unfinished business that we needed to address. And, and so I was very excited to like get back to it with this sort of blockchain powered version of itself. So your initial idea was sort of to work with restaurants and hotels, as you said, as like a means to an end. Was your thinking that if you could get these businesses to deploy networks, that that would be a starting point to sort of figure out some way to get other businesses to deploy networks or at least get some coverage going on? Yeah, exactly. I think we had this sort of three-tiered model in our head where it was some sort of combination of enthusiasts and users and, and businesses. And, um, but, it, you know, it's hard. Like, you, you, you don't really have a reason to do this unless you're building the application yourself. And you're not going to build the application yourself unless there is sort of broad coverage that you can take advantage of, depending, depending on the use case. Um, and so you had a very much a chicken egg problem that it was unclear how to solve. And so we just sort of said like, ah, eh, that's not gonna, that's not gonna work. And so we moved away from the sort of the broad network idea into, you know, let's build solutions for people that have problems in a specific location, like in a factory, in a restaurant, in a hospital, like in a, you know, warehouse or whatever. Uh, but that never felt right. You know, that was, you know, that was never, that never felt like the right thing to do. Like I, I am naively a big believer in, in sort of purpose. Of companies, I, I think there was a lot of ways for us to like to make a lot more money than we've made, um, and I'm sure some of our investors are mad at me for not pursuing those. Um, but that never felt like what we were supposed to do or why we started the business. And so this, you know, this feels like a much more natural path for us, and still solving an extraordinarily large unsolved problem in the world. That's really interesting. So you kind of started off with the Amazon approach of sell books first, but then you sort of realized that that didn't quite fit. You couldn't quite take that model and just copy it and then have it work. I mean, actually, we started with the sell everything first. At the start, at the very start, we were just like, let's just build a network and let's build tools and then figure it out, right? And and, and I, actually, that was it wasn't terrible. It, it, we had a lot of traction and a lot of interest in the, in the early days. The problem was there was no way to like feasibly grow this network, right? We had, you know... I think two or 300 beta users in San Francisco is probably 2014. And there was no way that we could figure out how to turn that into tens of thousands, you know, across the country. And so that's what led us into this sort of vertical approach. So we sort of went from the sell everything to sell books back to sort of sell everything um, sort of approach, except this time around, we have a, a different sort of incentive model than we did in the first place, which I think makes all the difference. So we'll get to the helium hotspot itself in a future episode, but I saw in your blog that you've got a couple of iterations or at least one other iteration of the helium hotspot that never made it to the public. Why did that never get released? Can you talk more about that? Yeah, so the original vision of, of helium was to build a new wireless protocol at the same time. Like we, we weren't very satisfied with LoRaWAN or our 802.15.4 protocol that we built for, for a variety of reasons. And so we started building a wireless protocol at the start that was called WIP. Um, and, you know, the goal there was that it would fix some of the things that we really didn't like about LoRaWAN. And at the time, those were things like, okay, I want fine time stamping of packets without having to spend thousands of dollars on a gateway. And I want to be able to send arbitrary size data and have the protocol chunk that up for me and not be, you know, restricted to, to certain packet sizes and uh, stuff like that, right? And that, and that was, you know, that was a lot of our motivation behind why we were building WIP. And there was, a, you know, a decent list, list of reasons. And so part of that was we wanted the hardware to be very open, right? The, one of the downsides of LoRa is that it is a closed 
uh, sourced physical layer and a modulation scheme owned by Semtech. And we didn't really like that. And I think they're, they're getting better about this. Like to their credit, they are moving very heavily in the direction of, of opening this. And I would be surprised if they didn't completely open it at some point in the future. But they've gotten you know, a lot more diversity in terms of who the manufacturers are and the partners are that are building for chips. But at the time, it was really just Semtech. And I think there was one other Chinese sort of variant of it called Hope RF. And we were, you know, we wanted it to be possible to use helium using practically any sub gigahertz radio out there. And part of, you know, part of the way that we were going to do that was to build this hotspot that was a software defined radio. So like a very high capacity SDR. Uh, we got pretty far down. Like I have one here. You, you won't see it that well in, in this <laughs> thing because it will get cropped out. But it looks similar to the current hotspot, except inside it's oh, like wow. vastly, it's vastly different inside. And this was a, uh, a very novel software defined architecture inside that was still reasonably cost effective to produce. Um, and what it meant was that you would have a hotspot that could listen to like practically anything it would hear over the, over, over the air and use software to decode it. Right. And, and, um, and so this was super interesting. The downside of, of, of this was that there isn't any off-the-shelf hardware that looks like this, right? There's a few makery sort of things that you can put together, and there are SDRs on a USB stick, and you know there there are other ways to do this. But you know, what we what we came to realize over time, and probably everyone is like listening to this and be like, yeah, that's obvious. Like you're an idiot. Probably probably true. Was that like latching on to like a bigger ecosystem is just just better and easier. Right, like if you build something like WIP or LongFi, as we ended up calling it, you have to bootstrap the whole thing from scratch. Right, there are no devices, there is no hardware out there on the market that just sort of natively works with this thing. And so we decided at some point that just switching to to both LoRa as a technology was was smarter because we could build the gateway much more cheaply than trying to do this SDR thing on our own. There were existing manufacturers in the space already, like there's dozens of gateway manufacturers already in the LoRa ecosystem. Uh, and then eventually with the switch to LoRaWAN, it's like there's, you know, thousands upon thousands of existing sensors in the, in the, in the ecosystem that already work with this protocol. So that's a much easier proposition than, you know, let's bootstrap the whole thing, like hardware, you know, device side, firmware, like everything. And it was just, it just was too much. Like it was too slow, too painful, you know, like deals were getting held up that we were trying to do because we didn't have like downlink support. And I was like, this is stupid. You, you know, like there's, there's already a protocol that has downlink support. Everyone already uses it. We don't like a lot of parts of it, um, but you know it's just sort of lesser of two evils, and I think it's helped us go a lot faster being able to just sort of latch on to an existing thing rather than try to build it ourselves. That makes a ton of sense. There are definitely a ton of LoRaWAN devices out there, although not necessarily in the U.S. According to my own research, there isn't really any widely deployed, or at least definitely not publicly available LoRaWAN network in the U.S., Although in the EU, it seems like actually there are a couple of countries that are completely covered uh, in LoRaWAN from more traditional type carriers. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, you know, in the EU, you've got a combination of things. You've got the Things Network, which is a, a sort of open community built LoRaWAN network. You could say similar in nature to what we're doing, but I, I think perhaps fundamentally different in a lot of ways. Uh, and then you've got the sort of carriers, the sort of traditional telcos who have built large networks themselves. And those, those are guys like Orange in France and KPN in Holland. Um, and the problem with those carrier operated networks is that they don't have a great economic structure, right? It's still quite expensive. 
to use those networks. The coverage is great because they're sort of big backing LoRa gateway locations on top of their their LTE infrastructure. Uh, LoRa has very good range, but the cost of using those networks, at least in the sort of conversations that we've always had with people, has always been prohibitive. Uh, so they've never really taken off. And in the states, there's like nothing here. You know, you've got I think Senate is is sort of the probably the largest other operator outside of Helium. Um, Comcast took a shot at this with an initiative called Machine Q, and and you know they had hoped to sort of leverage a lot of their existing infrastructure that doesn't seem to have worked out. Um, so you know, it, it's a tough problem. You know, like if you're going to solve it a traditional way, you're I think at least in the states you're not going to make it just because the the landmass is just so large that you need you need so much you you need such a massive footprint to put a dent in in coverage in in this country. And uh, we've seen, you know, guys like Sigfox try that and then start it and then end up just sort of backing out and leaving. And I think they're actually trying to sell their U.S. network right now. So, uh, yeah, it's not easy. It's not not a criticism of them as much as like it's just a hard, it's just hard. It's hard and expensive. That's definitely a great point on the landmass of the U.S. I mean, we've seen this play out in the traditional cellular carrier market where T-Mobile has come in with this sort of revolutionary model, at least revolutionary in the U.S. of, you know, unlimited data and whatnot, and they won huge spectrum auctions totaling, I think, tens of billions of dollars. Um, and they started to build out this network, and they've, they've been at it for five plus years with this you know, really top-notch team, and they're really taking it really seriously, and they still have tons of coverage gaps that they need to work on. So it's pretty clear that this country is unique, especially given our mass amount of rural uh, sort of square miles that are out there. Yeah, and, and you know, those guys have to make an ROI calculation at some point, right? Like if they're going to create all of this network coverage in these rural areas, like are there enough $100, $200 a month customers there to make it worthwhile, right? And, and again, that's it's just so expensive to do all of this um, that sort of approaching this with a completely different model where sort of a, you know, participants in the network are economically incentivized to sort of do it on their own and sort of act as their own sort of little cell towers you know, we think is the only sane way to try and build, uh, especially the low power networks, but might also be true, or we think it's true for things like 5G networks, where there are different physics involved and the range of a base station is extremely low. It's hard to imagine how any carrier, even at the size of like Verizon, Vodafone, or, you know, whatever other entity would ever be able to deploy enough 5G base stations to create anything that looks like, you know, full, full coverage. And so, I think it's highly likely that this model that we are trying here is is the way that wireless networks always get built, you know, going forward. Whether it's Helium or some other thing in the future, it, it to me makes sense that you would you would sort of choose this option versus spending tens or hundreds of billions of dollars trying to build the infrastructure yourself. That definitely makes a lot of sense. When you look at the Helium pricing model, you'll see that you know you're, you're pricing yourself probably 10 times lower than any of the carriers in Europe that are offering LoRaWAN at a minimum. And this pricing model could simply never be achieved by a U.S. telco. They were building out the traditional fashion, leasing cell tower, you know, space and power and fiber and paying for the labor, just everything and the spectrum, everything that goes into it, all these costs versus just using sort of the existing infrastructure of people's homes and businesses, which have power, have internet, and can operate in the licensed spectrum for free. You can see why there's a sort of massive difference in the, the possibility to create a really low-cost network there. 
Yeah, and, the, and the, the, I think the, the thing that's interesting or the thing that enables that, as far as I'm concerned, is the sort of crypto economic model. You know, like everyone gets to sort of participate in this model without needing us, right? Like we are, you know, a sideshow eventually in this whole network, right? Like today we, you know, we are the sort of core maintainers and we launch the thing, but we don't need to be here long term, right? And in, in, in arguably, and I think that's an important point um, because it means that you know you're not you're not joining our network. Like you are you are building your own network that happens to be powered by technology that we devised. And I don't think that's a concept that any traditional telco would ever get behind. Uh, it just doesn't fit with the model that they've they've always pursued in the same way that Airbnb didn't fit in like Hilton or Hyatt's model until it's you know way too late, and um, and I, I think it's only possible you know when you power this thing sort of in this crypto economic way where the sort of the settlement is all decentralized, the sort of physical routing of packets is completely decentralized. Um, and there's an incentive for people to start the network in the absence of traffic initially, right? Like we're not, we're not going to pretend that there's very little traffic at the start of these networks. There's none, right? And, and you have to sort of create an incentive for people to build the network before it exists. And in some ways, the cell, the cell networks were lucky in, in the way that they ended up where they ended up. And there's, there's that famous McKinsey report that AT&T commissioned, I think it's probably in the nineties. I don't know if you saw this, but they asked McKinsey to report to them what they believe the total size of the cellular, you know, network audience would be in 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 the country. Like, how many subscribers would there be? And this, I think, it's probably mid mid to late nineties. And McKinsey came back and said that it was in the order of like nine hundred thousand people it was the maximum address <laughs> was the maximum addressable market, right? And, and so no one knew what the fuck they were doing, right? It was it was it was sort of dumb luck that they built this network to some degree. And then honestly, that Apple launched the iPhone, like, blew it into the you know into orbit. Um, but again, you know, it, it's hard to do some of this stuff and I think it's going to get harder. You know, like I said, the 5G range is really, really bad, you, you know, like millimeter wave 5G. So that's like the real high bandwidth stuff. So when people talk about low latency, you know, gaming and self-driving cars and like 4K video streaming, they're talking about the millimeter wave version of 5G. And, you know, those, those frequencies are interfered with by like humidity. You know, like if it's humid one day, like you're not going to receive anything. And glass certainly is out of the question. Um, yes, this, so operates really... at, this operates at what, 60 gigahertz, right? So for people who aren't that familiar with radios, the higher the frequency, at, certain, at some point it just basically becomes impossible to even get through like a brick wall. Yeah, it does. I mean, with the, you know, so the stuff that we do is in the 900 megahertz and, and below in some countries. Uh, and that tends to, like those radio waves are longer. They tend to like, you know, penetrate things better like brick and trees and um and they reflect better and, and stuff that's in higher frequency has much higher bandwidth right so you can actually stream 4k video in, in those high frequencies in the tens of gigahertz uh, but you really need like a direct line of sight to the thing you know we need a, you need a line of sight to the base station basically right it's not going to go around a corner it's not going to go through a wall it's not going to go through a window um and so those you know we're going to see a big shift there as people try and deploy 5g real 5g networks and you know what i expect to happen is sort of what at&t is now doing where they're starting to, to lie about what 5g is the same way they, they lied about what 4g was um and so like now on my iphone i have like 5ge in the corner of my of my iphone i don't know what 5ge is not a thing it's like doesn't a made even up exist thing. 
Right. You just made that up. But but it, it's it's easier for them to just make it up than to actually deploy a five G network. So um, yeah, it's going to be that'd be fun to watch. Yeah, it's an interesting distinction between what the carriers are sort of pitching and what the reality is, especially when it comes to IoT devices. I mean, if we're talking about an IoT future where there are you know smart street lights and sensors everywhere, as you said, to you know record air pollution, which is something I really care about, and to record you know parking spots. These devices need to be insanely small, have basically infinite battery life, right? Be able to last years on a coin cell battery and be able to reach really long distances to the nearest um, gateway or hotspot. And the reality of 5G, especially at 60 gigahertz, is just like so completely opposite of what these devices actually need. And even cellular, I mean, cellular networks, I believe, you know, Devices that connect to them use like maybe over a hundred times more power than you would want for an IoT device. So really, what's unique about LoRaWAN and which is what the Helium network uses is that it's an extremely low power wireless network, and there's just nothing out there that exists like this. Which is, I guess, why that you guys are doing this. Yeah, I, I think it's been the carriers have been using IoT as like fuel for 5G, which I think is is interesting. Like they're, they're um, maybe it's disingenuous also. Like it's not really the case, right? Like it, at least for this low power stuff. And I think that's the other thing that's happened over time is that the definition of IoT has shifted. It used to be these low power things, and now people include like you know a Tesla as, as an IoT device, right? right. And, and I, I think. Maybe that's fine. It's just different, you know. Like at the start of all of this, in you know, 2012 or 11, whenever I first heard the term IoT, I don't think people meant you know cars back 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 then. Um, maybe I'm wrong about that. I can't tell. But the 5G stuff is certainly not targeted at low power things, right? It's going to be extraordinarily power consumptive um, because moving massive amounts of data at high speed just takes more power. Like it's sort of that simple, and the devices are on, you know for longer when they're streaming video and the protocols are much more complicated because uh, we've seen this with NB-IoT as an example. So NB-IoT is a, uh, a cellular protocol designed for low power things, right? And, and so this was a, a 3G PP standard. That's the sort of governing body that that is responsible for LTE and, and a lot of the other cellular protocols. And the idea with NB-IoT was that you would have sort of a LoRaWAN competitive, I honestly believe that LoRaWAN was a big driver for them doing this, um, it, but it would be a competitive technology that the telcos would be able to add alongside LTE, right? So it's part of the LTE family. A lot of those cellular base stations are software-defined radios, so it would be a you know, software upgrade rather than a hardware upgrade. Um, and it hasn't really materialized. And part of the reason why is you know, it's complicated to build wireless protocols that have to be very smart. You know, like they, for example, in NBOT, it often operates in the same spectrum as LTE. And so it has to sort of dodge around, you know, high bandwidth traffic. Mm. And that means that the, the protocol has to be smarter. It means the devices have to be more complicated. The firmware has to be more complicated. There are other versions of NBOT where they operate in what they call these guard bands, which is, you know, the sort of gaps between the LTE spectrum, um, which should be quiet. But again, it's like, you know, once you start bifurcating NBAOT into like sort of two different things, then you lose some of the economies of scale and you lose, you know, some of the ubiquity of the idea. Uh, and so NBAOT hasn't really caught on. I don't think the battery life was anywhere close to what they were claiming. Like they, I, I remember reading like 25 years of battery life or something and just laughing. 
um, and that hasn't materialized. And so we're, we're sort of still back to where we started, right? And even if you know, even if it did materialize, it's not clear that the, the economic model would would really be correct in the first place. And so we've certainly seen a lot of companies and customers that we've talked to who have experimented with NBIoT and found it unacceptable for various reasons, whether it was the cost of the hardware or the cost of the service or the battery life or, you know, sort of a combination of all three. Uh, and then the X factor there is that you have to like certify all those devices with the carriers. And if anyone's ever gone through that process, like oh, I can confirm that that is an awful process. Um, and so again, like having this sort of decentralized registration certification system that's sort of built into Helium is also a super interesting thing because it, it makes it easier for companies to just get stuff up and running and not have to go through this sort of very, very heavy, costly sort of time consuming process. That's really interesting. So getting back on track here, you were yeah. talking about, you know, bootstrapping the network and someone has to build the initial prototype and everything, right? The big telcos won't invest in it because it's just simply not enough immediate revenue, right, for the amount of investment they'd have to make. Um, and yet, as of today, your company has raised Series C with a total funding amount of over $54 million. So clearly... You've got some investors to believe in this vision, and you've got some real money behind it to sort of kick this off. And your latest round includes a surprising amount of what I would essentially call household names uh, in the tech investment community, including Google Ventures, Coastal Ventures, Union Square Ventures, FirstMart, SB Angel. I've actually never come across another blockchain company where I recognize so many investor names. So what I want to know is, how did investors react to your pitch at each stage of your funding? Did it get easier? harder as you sort of transition from this very straightforward idea to this sort of crypto economic model? Uh, um, so in the early days, you know, fundraising was, was very different, you know, and so in the seed round, uh, so back in 13, maybe even 12, like when we were starting this, there wasn't any, like LoRaWAN didn't even exist, right? Sigfox, it was sort of a thing, didn't really exist. So the whole notion of building a low power network was very novel, right? In, in, in that, in that day, right? Like today there's like, yeah, what is like Sigfox or it's like Senate, it's like Machine Q or it's, you know, it's like NBOT. But that back then that wasn't true. Like yeah, the whole notion of like, let's build this low power wireless network was very novel. So, you know, investors at that time, it was a much different conversation, but I think everyone realized the sort of problem space that we were tackling, which was that, you know, we were supposed to have all these things, even in 2013, this was true, and we still don't have all these things. And we think a big reason why we don't have them. Uh, and when I'm talking about things, I mean, like the kind of sensors that we're describing. Um, and the big, we think a big part of the reason why they don't exist is that there's not infrastructure there to use them, right? Like you're not going to build a, you know, radiation monitoring sensor if you can't, if you know, there's no network to use it on, right? Like it would be, it would be pointless. So that was, you know, in the early days, that pitch, I think, resonated with, with almost everyone. And our Series A was led by Coastal Ventures. It was like Vinod Coastal himself. Um, you know, and he, he certainly believed in that, in that vision. I think there was still a lot of questions at that time about how we would take it to market and, like, how we would actually make it work as a business. And, like, arguably, we still haven't figured that out. Um, but that was certainly the vision, right, is that, like, there should be a network like this. And if you, you know, if you built it, there must be like billions of applications that would take advantage of it. In the Series B round, which Google Ventures led, you know, we were in a slightly 
we're in the sort of a middle of a, a half pivot, right? Like that was when we were talking about um, let's go after some of these vertical applications. So like we still don't want to lose the original vision. Like we, we still want this like broad platform that we think other things can can build on top of. But we also think we should be perhaps focusing on some of these verticals like hospitals and restaurants and stuff like that. And that really ended up turning out to be a failed strategy. Like that was just sort of that was that was wrong. Maybe it wasn't wrong. The way we executed it was wrong. The way Samsar executed it was right. Um, and we did that incorrectly. And so the B round, we were sort of like halfway in between the change. And then the C round was very sort of very much the crypto, the crypto round. Like we were deep into the crypto experiment at that point. Like we had built most of the blockchain, like we had working hotspots. And, you know, we, we were very deeply into that, into it by the time we raised the C round. And so it's certainly been interesting. I, I think we have been very fortunate to have, as you said, like just a phenomenally sort of talented group of investors. And I think perhaps what's misunderstood about Silicon Valley VCs is that the good VCs understand the struggle. Like it's not a straight line up and to the right unless you're, you know, Facebook or something, right? And even then they had their struggles a little bit over time. And so I think the best VCs sort of help you figure out the struggle part, really, right? Is that like this, okay, it didn't, it didn't go exactly as we thought it was going to go, um, but this is a way for it to get sort of close to where we thought it was going to go or beyond where we thought it was going to go. And so we've been fortunate. I think we've got really good VCs, really good board members and partners who have helped me sort of navigate this over the years. Um, and I think had I not had some of the guidance and advice from people like the Node and um, and Matt Turk from First Mark and Andy from Google, like you know, it would have been really hard to to figure out what the hell we're doing. And now, you know, in the sort of crypto space, like having people like Nick Grossman from USB and Tushar from, from and Kyle from Multicoin, you know, it's like that's a world where we are, quite frankly, novices. And without their guidance and advice, I, it would equally be at loss, right? And, and so I think picking the right investors or having the right investors pick you, whichever way you want to look at it, is uh, it's just critical. Like whether you like it or not, you're like stuck with these guys for the lifetime of your company. Like, very little you can do to get rid of them at any point. And so, you know, make, make good decisions when you, when you decide to take money from people. And then, do, you know, just lastly, like it's a lot of money, but in the space that we're playing in, it's not a lot of money. You know, like this is a, you know, space where $50 million would get you coverage in a 10th of a city, you know, if you were a, you know, a telco doing this. And so, it feels like a lot, and oftentimes I'm like, "Shit, did we really have we really like raised and spent that much money?" Um, but relative to what we're trying to accomplish and sort of where we are, I, I it doesn't feel like a lot. Yeah, definitely in the blockchain space, it can seem modest when you look at these ICOs <laughs> that reach two, three hundred. I think there's one that was over a billion dollars, just like absolutely. Yeah, he, he has raised I think four billion dollars, so we we're we got a long way to go still. That's unbelievable. But, you know, what do you even do when you have that much money, right? Like, how can you even deploy that in a reasonable way? I think it just makes no sense when all you really need is, t is time and iteration and testing, right? Like, buying an audience isn't that expensive. One other thing that I found really interesting about Helium, other than its surprisingly mainstream group of investors, um, is the decidedly mainstream approach to the brand, right? You guys have been running display ads all over the web, all over social media with Simple, minimalistic, visually pleasing messaging, which has led to um, a surprising lack of what I would call crypto people in the community. Instead, yeah. we seem to have lots of hobbyists 
and even a fair amount of people who don't necessarily understand tech very well at all, but are enthusiastic and they're actively participating and learning. So was this an intentional decision and how exactly did you target those ads? Yeah, it certainly was intentional. Like there, there was, there was no accident in terms of the, uh, the approach that we took. I mean, and so, and I think this is, there's several reasons for this. And I, I, I saw someone recently in one of the Helium Telegram channels say that I need to do a better job of engaging with the crypto community or that I don't know how to do that. I saw that. And I kind of got involved in that little spar there. Yeah. Uh, and I thought that was a really interesting comment. And, and the reason I think we took the approach, I don't want to say that that's incorrect. There's certainly a part of it which is true. Like I, I, I think we do avoid the crypto community largely um, but it's because this isn't really for the crypto community, right? If I were to think about projects like EOS or Ethereum or or Solana, like all, all things that I, I think are great. I don't know much about EOS. Maybe it's not great. It's, I hear it's run by a Chinese cartel is the last I was told uh, th- at this point in terms of mining, but maybe that's not accurate. Um, Who knows? Yeah, I, I don't know. But all of those things are, and all the, all the DeFi infrastructure, you know, stuff like Compound and maker and all that stuff which i think is actually fascinating like i'm, I'm like illiterate but fascinated with in 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 that world like i don't like, understand 70 yeah. percent of what of what i hear but it's interesting and there's something powerful there about sort of democratizing finance and lending and everything else that goes with it but that stuff is really all for the the cryptocurrency community right the consumers right. of defy are crypto holders right and right. and the creators of dApps are crypto people and you know all of this stuff all of these projects are for today i know they have visions you know like if i looked at definity or if i looked at solana like the goal of course is to like escape this this ecosystem and sort of achieve mainstream reach and some of them will do that but but today those projects exist to service that universe and so it's of course critical that they talk to that universe right like that's their customer right and and or that's their user and whichever way you want to think about it for us, that's not the case, right? Like our network needs geographic reach, right? And, and that means you've got to go a lot broader than on the supply side, right? Like on the hotspot side, you've got to go a lot broader than, you know, just the crypto communities. Like you've got to reach anyone, right? Like anyone has to find this interesting and compelling. And I think every decision that we've made all the way from the start, including creating the hotspot, like there was an argument to be made about like why build the hotspot? Like there's already Laura gateways on the market that do exactly the same thing. Like why would you bother doing this? And I think the answer is that the user experience is not correct, right? Like you want to make this as easy to use. And so we built the mobile app and we built all these Bluetooth interfaces and like all of the, you know, all these subsystems that run inside the hotspot that are really around, you know, how do we make it easy to set the thing up and just do what it's supposed to do? And that, you know, extends into the marketing and the advertising and really the entire audience that we've gone after is like anyone, you know, literally anyone anywhere should, should find this interesting, compelling and be able to use it. And that means that we haven't cared that much, quite honestly, about the crypto community. They just don't fit that profile. We don't, it's, it's a relatively small group of people largely concentrated in New York or San Francisco. And, you know, that's, that's cool. It's just not our audience right, right now. And similarly, on the demand side of the network, our, our users are not you know, engineers writing dApps, right? They are enterprises like Nestle and 3M and Lime and Conserve and, you know, Salesforce and probably other names I'm not even supposed to mention that use the network, right? These are guys building sensor applications that 
require you know a network coverage and so that that's just the difference in this project and we didn't set out to be in the crypto space we set out to build a wireless network and it just turned out to us that the crypto sort of economic approach was the right way to do it um much like i would expect someone like filecoin eventually to have to sort of wander very far away from their from the sort of crypto roots because their customers are people who want to store store files right and that need that needs to be like anyone right that needs to be an s3 customer or, or a dropbox user or a, you know it's much broader than that and so i think that's why like that, and that's why we've taken the approach that we've taken um, and i think it's been okay I and mean, i think we've sold over 11,000 hotspots now i don't know if that was public knowledge or not um, like they're basically sold out at all times and we can't make enough of them fast enough at, at any volume to you know actually keep any of the things in stock which sucks and you know we want to uh, we want to move to a different model where it's much more partnership based than us just sort of being the hotspot manufacturer. Um, but you have to start this. You know, I think one of the mistakes the crypto community has made is that the user experience is atrocious of practically every crypto thing. And, you know, improving that, I, I think, needs to be a very big focus for everyone in the space. And that doesn't just mean cons for consumer focused things. It means for developer tools and everything else Like you just, you know, it's too hard. It's too complicated. And so, that's sort of the approach that we've taken, and I, I think it's been a, been reasonably successful for us so far. I really agree with a lot of that, and one of the things that really drew me to Helium was that it really seemed like a solution that already had tons of demand, right? I think a lot of people got burned in 2017, like mainstream people who got involved in crypto sort of bought at whatever point in the curve when it was going parabolic and then everything crashed. and. I remember I was so just gobsmacked at the time. I'm like, why is all this stuff going up and to the right? It doesn't do anything. Like Ethereum is the only thing that did anything, really. Well, I think, you know, I, I think it's two things there. So firstly, I think Ethereum's, Ethereum's product market fit was the ICO, right? Like that, that, right. that, was, that was the thing, for, right? The fact that you could create native assets easily that was that's a that was a genius move on their part. Like that was the sort of catalyst for them to be able to then survive, to end up you know finding things like DeFi and other things you know organically that that will be highly valuable. But I, I think what the ICO boom was, to me was, you know, this, it showed this real desire for retail investors to participate in pre-public tech companies. Right. Like it's just, you know, that, that is one of the most sort of unfair marketplaces that exists in the United States, as far as I'm concerned. Right. Is that like you've got this extraordinary like wealth creation machine in terms of like tech startups. Right. They are account for vastly over a half of the, of the Fortune 500 companies at this point. Right. And, and the, the general public has not been able to participate in that success until after, you know, all the money has been made. And that's not true. Right. Like, look at the. Look at the stock price of Tesla as an example. But for the most part, you know, if you wanted to make a lot of money on Uber, you had to be early into it, right? Like you had to be, you know, investor of four or whatever, like Jason Kalkanis always tells us. And, you know, no one can do that. Like random, random people, you know, retail investors have no way of doing that. Right? They don't know how to find those deals. They're not even allowed into them because of the incredible investor laws. And so the, you know, the ICO boom was like, shit, I can now part, join into like a tech company in the early days and watch it skyrocket in value over time. 
the, the problem with it was like multiple fold, right? Like you had blatant fraud and scamming on one side, right? Like a lot of these projects, I think, had never had any intention of delivering anything close to what they were promising, right? And so those guys are just, you know, scum and should go to jail or, or whatever should happen to them. The others were like just optimistic. And, and this happens in Silicon Valley too, right? Like a lot of us are wildly optimistic about what we're trying to build. It's not fraudulent in nature. It's just, you know, we don't know what we don't know yet. We discover that we don't know, you know, a little bit too late in the process. And so where the accredited investor laws are helpful is that the people participating in companies like us are, you know, big boys that can sustain substantial losses and know the game that they're playing, right? And, and that's, you know, that's the hard part. And there's some balance there where, you know, there has to be enough information and public disclosure required by companies before retail investors will, will sort of participate. And, you know, that sort of corrected itself, right? It's unfortunate that like billions of dollars were lost in the process. Like, I, I, don't, I don't feel good about that at all. But I'm certain that the next time this craze comes around, and it will, um, that retail investors will be a hell of a lot smarter than they were the first time, right? They will, you know, everyone will have learned from that lesson. But I think that's what it, to me, that's what it really showed was that like, you know, it's unfair that the retail public can't, can't participate in early stage tech ventures. And that was the sort of pent up demand for that. But yeah, that was, there was some really horrific, you know, we, we looked at some of this stuff. I even talked to some of these guys, like, I mean, I, I think some of it is, is like I said, just straight up fraud. Like there was never an intention to build the thing. Uh, and then for, in other cases, there was, of course, an intention to build things that are really hard, like Falcon, right? Like they're way off schedule. Uh, but I don't doubt for a second that they are actually trying to deploy and build a thing and they're like several testnet iterations in and the problem they're trying to solve is hard. Um, and so again, it's just, you know, none of this stuff is easy. I think adding distributed systems and blockchains to it makes it an infinitely sized problem, as Anatoly from Solana describes it. Um, and that's just too much for for almost anyone to like, you know, navigate through. Yeah, I think it's a double-edged sword, right? You have these retail investors, you know, normal everyday people who now have this chance to invest in all these crazy futuristic ideas. But then at the same time, as you said, you have these basically copy, copy-pasted websites with different logo and a different cool animated background that say, you know, smart contract platform of the future, white paper, investment, roadmap, and it would take a very technical person to dig into each one of these things and actually truly understand. And even if you're very technical, you can still get confused between what's vaporware, what's actually being worked on. You know, a lot of teams back then were good at feigning what they were actually working on. And I think we're going to, I think it was a necessary step to just see how wrong this can all go. <laughs> um, but we're going to need to move past that. And I think we need value created in the ecosystem where normal people can sort of get their hands on it physically. I mean, with a Helium hotspot, you can physically get your hands on it. You can physically get a device called Helium Tabs. You can get a device in your hand and see, this talks to this. This provides me value because now I can track my dog or whatever for six months. This is the type of value we need to be creating in the crypto ecosystem. Not just value, but like dead obvious value um, that normal people can invest in and feel like they're not going to get burned and feel like they're actually participating in something that's worthwhile. And I think that in the future, the crypto projects that succeed, I hope, will be the ones that generate actual value because so many people, so many normal people have been burned since 2017 that I think they're going to be very cautious in coming back into this space unless it's just dead obvious that the thing that they're investing in or using 
is so much better than the centralized version. Yeah, and even then, it's not obvious, right? So, I mean, on the one hand, you've got frauds and scams, and those guys ideally would, you know, ideally they would never succeed, right? Like you would look at those things, and somehow it would be obvious that it was a scam, and you would just avoid it. But even for the stuff that makes it to the light of day, I mean, I'm just I have like coin market cap up. Like I have no idea what the purpose of Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin SV, Litecoin, Litecoin, you know, just going down this list like Stellar. You know, these are all projects that actually like work. It's not clear to me what the purpose of them are or why the market caps are like, you know, 1.7 billion and above. And so I, I think there is still like a wild mismatch in terms of value and purpose, right? And, and again, Stellar, I'm sure it's wonderful. Like there's some good technology under there. I don't know what it does or why and why it's worth $1.7 billion. Bitcoin Cash, even worse. Bitcoin SV, even worse. And Litecoin, the worst, as far as I'm concerned, right? Like, what what is the point of any of it? Yet they're they're at a valuation of three billion dollars in total market cap, and so it's hard to weed out. It's hard to know what's good and bad because um, it's not clear why any of it is here, just to some degree. Like Bitcoin, sort of the the sort of grandfather of it of this all, and we hope that it sort of replaces fiat currencies in lots of different places over time because I. I, I I think there is a real purpose to that existing. Ethereum, like I said, I think created the ICO and allowed people to build to buy applications. And so you can sort of understand that. The rest of it is is highly is highly sort of speculative, right? And and so even when there's real products deployed, it's I think it's going to be difficult. What I hope you minimally see is that scams get just eviscerated and you know don't see the light of day. But even in venture, you know, where where you sort of in the VC universe, where I think everyone actually does have good, not everyone, but most most companies have good intentions. It's still like a ninety plus percent failure rate, right? It's it's right. You know, I think the I think the misconception is that good VCs pick more winners than losers, and that's actually not it. It's like the big the good VCs pick the biggest winners, right? Like this, mm. it's that the good VCs have picked Facebook and Uber and you know Airbnb. It's not a game of averages. It's a game of massive hits and and that is a long game that takes deep pockets and patience and i i don't know that that's a good fit for sort of a typical retail investor usually but people should be allowed to decide that on their own yeah and a lot of these big coins that you're talking about that have huge valuations i mean to me it seems like the reason that that's true is just the sheer network effect of a lot of people having tried them early on because they were all that was there <coughs> and the network yeah. effect of being listed on the biggest exchanges like, why is Litecoin on Coinbase? I don't know, but it is. And that's that's like, huge. I mean, you see this constantly when, you know, a coin gets listed on a new exchange, it just gets bumped up by 20% because that's like some right. form of approval. And I want the audience to really understand the stance that Helium is taking towards listing and exchanges because you guys are publicly, publicly stated that you're not participating in exchange listings. You've strictly banned discourse about trading or exchanges in the Discord channel. And my understanding that this is this due to SEC regulations and the general ambiguity around cryptocurrency laws in the U.S. Is there anything more you'd like to add there? Uh, I mean, it just depends if anyone from the SEC or, or our council is listening. Um, and it's complicated. I mean, I, I think the Howey test is sort of the SEC's or, or the sort of legal version of what what it is to be a security, and and you know, so for people who aren't familiar with the sort of tension in the cryptocurrency space, it, it is really entirely around whether the SEC believes 
these assets are securities or not securities. Or that's like basically if I were to try and summarize it in like you know that many words, that would that would be the best I could do. And the measure of whether a thing is a security is determined by something called the Howey test. And Howey was an orange farmer who owned like an orange grove and sold you know rights to oranges to to people, right? And and the SEC in the 40s, 50s, or 60s, I forget, determined that that was an investment contract because people weren't actually buying oranges, they were buying rights to future oranges. And um, that has formed the basis for how everything should be looked at. And the sort of four pillars of a, of a security, according to the Howey test, are an investment of money in a common enterprise uh, with the expectation of profit through the efforts of others. And you, you can tell by the fact that I know this off the top of my head, that this is a thing that anyone in this space spends a lot of time thinking about. And you know, part of what is annoying about operating in the cryptocurrency space is that it's not exactly clear how to think about any of those things. Um, like if you look at Ethereum, as far as I'm concerned, there's no question that the ICO originally was a sale of securities. Like there's no question about that in my mind. But the SEC hasn't really made that clear or made that obvious. They now say it's not a security, but you know, did it shift from being a security into not a security over time? And what was the sort of trigger for that being true? And so, you know, our belief has basically been that if you engage with exchanges and you sort of promote speculative behavior, then there's a reasonable chance that someone looking at this is going to believe there's an expectation of profit, right? Like that's, that's the way that we think about this. And that's not our intention. Like our purpose is to build a wireless network that has utility and value. And that has nothing to do with speculation, right? And so we have removed ourselves entirely from any discussion uh, around exchanges and listing and speculation. It's just not, it's not what we do. And I think that's alien to people. You know, people come into our Telegram channel and they start asking about market makers and like, why aren't you listed on, you know, Binance or Coinbase or whatever. And it's just like, you know, if the, if the sort of community at large, you know, including the exchanges decides that they want to list HNT, that's great. You know, and, and to some degree, we are happy to assist with any technical questions that people have around like what to do with HNT and the network. But we are not approaching exchanges. Like we are not having those conversations. We're not paying anyone. Like we're not doing anything as it relates to sort of actively trying to get these, the, trying to get HNT to be a sort of more speculative thing. And I, I, I just think that that's no one understands that. And we've been very cagey about why we're why we've taken that stance and what we're why we're we're doing it this way. But you know, it's, it's similar to your sort of original question. Like we're not supposed to be. This isn't a crypto company to some degree, right? Like we didn't start this to like speculate on crypto assets. We started it to build a wireless network and it, we believe that crypto economics are the best way to do that. And I think those are two fundamentally different ideas. Um, and as a result of that, you know, whether it ends up in an exchange or not is less of a driver for us. It's, you know, I, I don't agree with, with the SEC about exchanges. And, you know, so the SEC and Kin were recently in court. Um, you know, arguing about kin, and you know, one of the points that the kin attorney made was that, you know, speculation does not necessarily mean an investment contract. I agree with them, but until that is, you know, def precisely defined in law, we're just going to, you know, err on the side of what we're doing. Um, but we've already seen, you know, I think HNT is listed on two, three different exchanges. There's another one forming, uh, and so you know, we're okay with that happening. Of course, so we can't stop it. We didn't, we didn't um, intend for it to happen. But if it happens organically throughout, you know, without our, our involvement or our efforts, then I think that's probably the best way for it to occur. 
Yeah, I definitely agree. And I, I love the idea of organic listing. Of course, exchanges will want to gain fees, right? This is their whole business model is charging you a fee on each trade. So they're incentivized to list the most valuable projects that people actually want to trade. And I love the idea of coming, sadly, from the more non-traditional in the crypto space approach, whereas the traditional approach is just get listed on as many exchanges as soon as possible so the price goes up, um, taking that yeah. sort of opposite approach with Helium where um, listing is basically uh, going to be based on merit. And one thing I get sort of frustrated with, I think people don't really understand is that you guys don't have to be the ones to approach the exchanges. This is a decentralized network. Anybody can run a node, right? And, you know, if someone wants to get Helium listed on an exchange, they could go, you know, be the champion for that themselves. There's nothing stopping anybody from getting a group together to try to get Helium yeah, listed please. on an exchange. Please do, you know, and so, so Helium X is this exchange that's launching that has basically been built around HNT. Um, that's great. You know, like we didn't ask them to do it. Um, they just, you know, felt motivated to do it themselves. And, you know, we're, we're cool with that. And I, I, you know, sort of to your point about getting listed on a bunch of exchanges and then sort of dumping coins, our sort of, you know, non pre mine model sort of aligns with that. Right? Like this sort of pre mine right. thing, I, I think is highly bizarre where, you know, the projects just have a bunch of tokens and then they just dump them and they make a lot of money without having really done a whole lot of work uh, or created a lot of value, I should say. Maybe there was work involved, but it's really about value creation. Uh, and so our sort of, you know, founders reward style of model, which is, you know, at least loosely inspired by Zcash, uh, I think is a much better way of doing this because it sort of aligns value with, you know, creation of it, right? It happens over time and it requires effort and you should only be in a position to make any money if you've created any value really, right? And, and these sort of listings with their with their pops and their dumps or, I don't know, they just, it doesn't seem real. Yeah, I think the founder's reward is interesting for people who aren't aware. It's 35% of all the uh, tokens minted, which decreases by, I believe, about 1% per year goes to Helium yeah. and the founders. and it's an interesting model because you guys still, you know, th this is this is how the investors get their return on their $54 million, right? Like if the token doesn't succeed, I don't know if they necessarily succeed or, or you succeed. Um, and you guys still do get a large share of the tokens. Um, but the key difference is that it's not upfront and it's not like you got all these tokens before everyone else. You, It's, it's sort of more democratic. I don't know if democratic is even the right word, but sort of more equal in that you give other people the opportunity to generate these tokens alongside. You're like, hey, here's this pool for everyone. We get 35%, everyone else gets 65%. And, you know, whoever's first basically gets the most tokens. Whoever builds out the most gets the most tokens. And I think that's a fairly thought out and fair way to do that. Well, we think so too. And, and eventually, if we're not adding any value to the ecosystem, we would expect that the network participants would just fork us out of it. You know, right. like it, it, it should only exist if if everyone believes that we are providing value in the ecosystem. T today, I think that's certainly true. Um, you know, we intend to do that over time. Um, but it, you know, it's only the consensus is defined by you know the majority of people running these nodes, and if they decide that they want to change that, they can. Um, and we hope they don't. We hope they don't. 
Right. Um, but we also, you know, believe that we need to continue to add value into the ecosystem in order for that to be true. And we're, of course, comfortable and happy doing that. Uh, and I hope that anyone involved in the healing ecosystem sort of sees the amount of work that we put in to, to try and continue to make this better um, or to sort of continue to add value, I should say. And uh, yeah, we'll just see how that goes over time. So wrapping up about Helium, the company, what's the sort of long-term, more moonshot vision of the company? If I understand correctly that Helium Network has been one of the quickest deployments of a wireless network of, of all time in terms of pure square miles covered, and especially you know in this distributed fashion, which is, my understanding, never really been done before. Um, incentive models clearly proven itself to work. So do you think that a traditional telco in the future would stand a chance against, say, a 5G network or other traditional cellular network whose deployment was was incentivized in a similar fashion? I don't think so, honestly. I mean, there's a lot of hurdles, for, you know, before you can do something like 5G this way. Uh, there's the spectrum issue. There's the backhaul speed issue. You know, there's, there's lots of questions that make it much harder than what we're doing today. Uh, but, I, you know, like I said, I, I think if you want to build a 5G millimeter wave network, you're going to need some help. You know, like there's no way there's no way to do it yourself. And I don't know if you remember these femtocell devices that the carriers made available, where you sort of plug it into your Wi-Fi or your Ethernet at home. And yeah, yeah, I wanted one creates, of those. <laughs> yeah, creates a little you know cell network for you, uh, and that's sort of the the start of an idea there, right? And the the problem is that there's not a there's not a real good incentive for you to do that unless you need the coverage yourself. Right, which right, and so the messaging I think is tricky because you're, you know, Sprint or whoever or AT and T is saying like, you know, our coverage is shit, and the only way for you to use us is to like buy one of these devices, right? And so that's not a good, that's not a good message. And and I, I think the statistics of those femtocell devices is like forty fifty percent of them never even got turned on uh, when when they were sent out. And so wow. yeah, I, I think that like I said before, whether it's Helium or or a successor to us or an alternate version of us, it, it will, I think, become obvious that the only way that wireless networks should be built is this way. It doesn't make sense for, there's no need for, for anyone to like really manage and own the thing other than for sort of access to the customer and subscriptions and things like that in the first place. But over time, you could, you know, imagine that moving away from that model and being much more decentralized than it is. Um, so it's going to take some time. I mean, it's sort of going that way. Like I discovered that the iPhone and all the Android phones have access to the Citizens Band radio for, for LTE, which is an unlicensed spectrum, we call CBRS. And so it's feasible that, that you could run an LTE network in CBRS and that existing devices would be able to use it. Um, I think in 5G, there is some open spectrum up in the 60 gigahertz range, and all the licensed stuff is down in the 20s and 30s and 40s. Uh, so the, the spectrum problem is, is an evolving landscape. Like I, I think we'll see it change. Access to the customer is still the key. You know, like if I told you there was a Helium 5G network, but you were an AT&T subscriber, like how do you, how do you make the switch? Like how do you know about the network? How do you join it? How do you, you know, how do you do any of that? Um, and so perhaps there's a hybrid model where the start is that you work with the carriers and, you know, augment their existing coverage to start with and then eventually just sort of try and split away from it. I don't know. We've we certainly thought about a lot and had a lot of conversations with some of the carriers about, about things like that. Um, so yeah, I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll see. There's a lot of, we have a lot of ideas and a lot of plans. 
I think the, the, the sort of problem set in front of us is large enough that we don't need to be thinking about that quite yet. Um, the network is still quite, quite immature. Um, we are very, very focused on, you know, helping applications and devices like get onto the network. I think that's the key. Uh, and I think if we can sort of succeed in continuing to grow the network and, you know, right now there's 4,300 or 4,400 hotspots deployed. I would hope that there's 11,000 out there in the next two or three months. Um, then I think you've got, you're, you know, already the telcos and the other LoRa alliance, the LoRaWAN participants have gone from thinking of this as a joke to thinking about this as something that they should partner with or as a threat. Um, and to me, that's a little bit Airbnb-like, right? Like even I thought Airbnb was a joke and now all of a sudden it does more, you know, gross booking than any hotel company, all the hotel companies combined. Um, and so, you know, you, it takes momentum. It's like, it's silly until it's not. And I think right. we're sort of quickly, we're quickly getting to the point where it's not. Well, it's definitely exciting to watch the progress. And I'm, I, as even as an early believer in this incentive model, like I've, I've always dreamed of sort of a wireless decentralized network. And when I found Helium, I was like, oh yeah, this is a really interesting way to build it. But even my expectations were exceeded in just how quickly everything has happened. And you guys have sold out of each batch of hotspots like way ahead of schedule. And of course, you haven't even gotten to Europe. You haven't even gotten to Asia yet, although I know Europe's launching very soon. Yeah. So, yeah, it's going. It's, uh, we're thrilled. I mean, I, we had no real expectation of what was going to happen. You know, not, we made 4,000 in the first batch, so we just had to sort of pick a number out of thin air. Um, you know, the hard part of building hardware is you've got to sort of like forecast demand pretty, pretty, pretty well. And I, I'm not sure that we've done that perfectly well. And it, it's difficult when you're sort of introducing an entirely new product and a new concept into the market and, you know, you're, you're sort of resource constrained. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, the demand has been fantastic and the community in general has been fantastic. I think it's, as you said, very different than a, a traditional crypto where it's, you know, when moon, sir, when moon is, is sort of yeah. a typical uh, thing. I like to I call see. it a moon Lambo talk. It's just right. Not, I haven't really seen any of that. Yeah. We don't have much of that, and that's you know kind of interesting and weird uh, for for a crypto-based thing. But also, I think testament to the fact that sort of what you said, like this is a thing that actually sort of services at least some amount of demand in the in the low power network space. And so we're not starting from scratch in terms of trying to convince people to do something that they weren't otherwise going to do. Um, and it's just a case now of like convincing people that this is real and that you know that Tile should build their next version of a product on this network and you know blah blah blah. Like that's and that just gets easier and easier as the network gets bigger and, you know, the tools get better and, you know, everything gets more mature. I think one of the most shocking things to me has been that Reddit seems to have not discovered Helium. Like, there's a Helium network subreddit, right? But if yeah. you look at any of the others, and it's pretty small, there's less than a thousand people, although it is growing very, very, like, nearly exponentially at this point. But <laughs> if you look at any of the other subreddits, like cryptocurrency or whatever, there's just... There, like a helium thing gets posted like months ago, and there's just like one upvote, and no one like yeah. no one's there, no one's noticing, which is really interesting to me because Reddit seems to be a very like highly sort of smart community that that catches on to things very early, but helium hasn't reached Reddit yet. I mean, it's, it it sort of in a way is good, and in a way annoys me. You know, you always wish that you had bigger reach and that you had a better you know a bigger audience than you do, but. I'm also glad to not have the distraction 
at, right. at least in the, in the early days. I mean, like we had so much to do um, that, you know, having to deal with that crowd of like purely speculative, you know, crypto guys would, would just have been a lot, you know, and so to have sort of dodged them while still being able to like, you know, sort of attract the sort of critical mass I think it's been helpful for us, but over time, I would expect that to change, like that something's going to cause a flip there. And then we're going to be in full, you know, crypto land and people, <laughs> people drawing circles around charts and making shapes. And, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be a, a different universe. But I, I generally have been happy to not uh, participate in it. Um, but you know, in the end, the more people that are aware of helium and buy into it, the better. We would just prefer that that's in the form of helping the network grow than you know drawing shapes on on the chart, the HNT chart. Yeah, I think that's really lucky too. I mean, I've been tangentially involved in some other crypto projects that I won't name, but if you look at their <laughs> Reddit communities nowadays, it's really just like you know, CoinX is the future. You know, this is why it beats Coin Y, and this is why I invested all my money in this, and uh, you know, just just going absolutely crazy fanboy mode, and yeah, and it's actually really strange to watch. It's almost dystopian, where you know, any dissenting view or any any even completely valid criticism either gets downvoted or just like will barely be upvoted. <laughs> um, and it's kind of scary. Like you don't want that sort of community that, that, cause that, in my opinion, it's a slippery slope from that to just like scam coin territory where, you know, even though the project may be legit, if the community surrounding it is toxic, that's really bad for you know, the future yeah. of that project. Yeah. And I think in general, you know, there's been a few bumps certainly with our community, but um, on the whole, I would say everyone's been fantastic. And have become great evangelists, including you, to have become great evangelists for uh, for what we're doing, uh, and I love that. You know, it's 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 much more like a traditional open source project than a crypto project, and I, I think that is that's great. Um, you know, I would love to take all the credit for it, but I don't think I can. It's just you know some combination of factors that I think has led us led us to this place, and I'm, I'm happy to be there. Um, yeah, and we're, you know, like I said, I, our focus at, at healing the company is relentless just on applications. Like that's both coverage and, and applications. That, that's what motivates us to, um, to keep doing what we're doing. And, you know, whatever value there is to HNT and, and how the sort of the, the economic sort of ecosystem works out, I, I think just sort of naturally comes when it's useful. You know, like if you've got, all sorts of applications. If IoT becomes synonymous with Helium the way Google is synonymous with search, then we don't have to worry about the value of HNT anytime soon. Like that's that's the that's the way we think about it, and um, that's all we're focused on. I love that. Well, thanks, Amir. This has been an amazing conversation, and I'm um, looking forward to more in the future. Thank you. It's great to be on here, and uh, I'll talk to you again soon.